0: Welcome to, To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our
1: relationship with God. morning so we're going to be in Romans chapter 11. And the last time the message was titled Human Responsibility, we just ended on a four-part series of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, personal choice, free will, whatever you want to call it. And it just it was neat to watch over four Sundays the interaction between God's sovereignty and his election and, and how we choose God and how we're drawn to the living God. So we, we finished that up. Uh, if you didn't get it, you can get it for free on the website. Uh, This morning, the message is titled, Beauty for Ashes. Now, this is with respect to Israel, and this will probably challenge some worldly beliefs that we have in our culture about who believes in Jesus and who doesn't believe in Jesus and what group does this and what group does that. But let's see what the Bible says, right? We're going to check that out. And certainly, Beauty for Ashes, in the case of Israel, we know that Zechariah 12 and other scriptures... This Tells us that Israel's is going to have another, it's going to be a national repentance and acceptance as Jesus as their Messiah. Again, it's not right now, but it is a future occurrence. So, beauty for ashes in the sense that maybe nationally they did not when Christ came, they resisted, and we'll talk about the, resi- the reasons why the Messiah was resisted, but how that's going to change and why it's going to change. Uh, but we can also look at our own lives. You know, 2,000 years later, after the Bible was codified, etc., written, uh, beauty for ashes in our own lives. You know, we can certainly, if you're here and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can probably think back to what your life was before you were a believer and what your life has become since you've been a believer. So Isaiah 61 speaks about God giving beauty for ashes. And if you think about ashes, it's when something's completely burned, there's nothing left of it. It's useless. It just becomes, it's not even embers anymore. It's ashes. But God says, and he's the great miracle worker, he can bring beauty in our lives from these ashes. Now, so what we've been doing in Romans, since Romans 1, speaking about God's, even in his invisible attributes, God's characteristics through nature, it's a really cool thing. I actually started with the insect world, then I moved to animals. Uh, So it's kind of like a little tradition in Romans that every Sunday we're going to go take a real small aside about God's creations and talk about their complexity and how their complexity reveals a creator and a designer. So this morning, if you're a dog lover, we're going to talk about the dog. Uh, we can just play the video without the sound, but dogs are very interesting animals. You know, they're uh, very attuned to human behavior and human interactions uh, based on the fact that they just have this closeness to human beings, and I wonder what At- Adam's dog was like, uh, no doubt Adam's dog had the predisposition for all the dogs that we see today, the, 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 the genetic capacity and, and potential that was there, so it's pretty neat, isn't it? Yes but dogs uh, are used in law enforcement. They can sniff and detect bomb-making materials. They can uh, detect illegal drugs, things that we can't detect. They're used for herding, for shepherding, for labor, for protection. Dogs are used in the medical and the mental health field. And it's amazing the advances that they are using in these fields with the dog. As a matter of fact, God has a sense of humor. Uh, I did not plan this my secretary christine called me this morning and she said we have people coming in from out of state and they want to know and i already asked permission that i could say this they're in the back and they want to know if they could bring their diabetes detecting dog with them i said absolutely perfect right (laughs) so so the only thing is you can't the dog in the back um With Katie, she's 18. The dog is being trained, so you can't pet the dog. I mean, it it was very hard. I had to put my hands behind my back. Uh, I told you know my wife; she always wants to love on dogs and stuff. So um, last year, there was a, a young man who was a combat veteran in one of the recent wars, and he came back and he called me up and he said, "I have a dog who ministers to me. I have PTSD. Can I bring the dog to church?" So. We're not going to turn the church into bring your dog to church Sunday, but we, we will always make accommodations to, and don't just slap a thing over his back that says training so you can bring your dog to church, but, but we are very accommodating at this church. And the point I was trying to make where it kind of off, went off base a little bit was that the, the medical community and the mental health community have tapped into the great abilities of canines and are, are using it. So to actually have a recorded instance of a border collie who is able to respond to, think about this, 1,000 human commands, 1,000 human commands recorded. I'll leave you with this last thing. Um, Sometimes when you greet your friend's dog or a new dog, the dog goes right for sniffing you, and sometimes they, they don't understand boundaries, and it's a little uncomfortable. But the dogs have 230 million receptors in their olfactory system, their sense of smell is highly acute. So when they come and they sniff you and they greet you, what they can tell about you is what you've eaten, your medical history, how you're feeling right now, um, you know where you've been. So there's so many things that they could tell from just a few sniffs of you. So listen, the dogs in Darwin's day, without the electron microscope and you know the science that we have today, Darwin looked at a lot of the creatures as simple but the more we're studying them with the equipment that we have, we realize that they're very complex. So that's the dog. <laughs> this morning, we're going to take Romans uh, 15 verses. We're going to be in two sermons, three parts this morning, and then the second sermon is next Sunday. So let's jump into Romans 1. Romans 11, verse 1, excuse me. And the Apostle Paul tells us, I say then, has God cast away his people? Speaking about the Israelites. Now, remember, he's a, a rabbi. He's an Israelite himself, for those of you that are new to the scripture. Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him, to Elijah? Quote, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to bow. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant, A remnant, important word, according to the election of grace. So one out of three this morning is, has God cast away his people? Now, what is the context? What have we been covering? Uh, Paul gives pretty much three chapters here in a row about Israel, the Jewish people. Well, if you look at we've covered the totality of Old Testament Scripture. We've covered it in many ways. And we saw that even the Old Testament prophets prophesied that the leadership in general would reject the gospel of grace through the Messiah. So there's a lot of proof text in here. We've gone through this, but this is also temporary. Now, Paul makes a very important dichotomy here between national rejection and personal rejection. Right? National, the former, yes. But the latter, no, obviously. And he gives us proofs of how many Jewish people, and we know that over 2,000 years, probably millions of Jewish people have personally come to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There's more and more now Jewish groups that have, have received the Messiah. And we're seeing this great harvest of, you know, the world says, our culture says, Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. Well, we have about a dozen, some heads shaken. we have about a dozen ethnic Jewish people in this church, which is not very big, who believe in Yeshua HaMashiach. So we look at this, we understand it, we get it. Personal, yes. You know, acceptance, a lot of times national, no. So Paul is saying, I'm living proof and many like me. The other thing he points us to, and you say, well, why is he talking about the prophet Elijah? Because in that, that dialogue between God and this mighty prophet, right, God was saying to Elijah, you think that nobody in Israel is, is you know, you're like, you're the only person left. Um, Elijah had, he was a mighty man of God, but he did have a little bit of a pity party, and we're going to read that. And what God was saying, I have a remnant. There's there's thousands of them that have not bowed to these false idols. Even though the culture is decadent, uh, these people are loyal to me, as you are. You're not the only one. So that's pretty neat stuff. Uh, And i got to tell you, when we look at Christianity as a culture sometimes we see things and we say, well, that that doesn't seem to be Christian. That's certainly not biblical Christianity. So you can definitely make the parallels today with many who have fallen away from the original mandate and the original, you know, instructions that we see in sacred scripture. So let's check out this one example. As a matter of fact, Elijah tells on, you know, he's, he's a Jewish, he's a Hebrew prophet. And he's telling on them. He's snitching on them, so to speak. But let's go to First Kings 19 and see what the Lord says to him. First Kings 19. And he has this great victory against the false prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. And the queen, the wicked queen Jezebel, is basically saying she breathes murderous threats. And she's going to kill him. And she's making sure he gets it. And he panics and he flees. And he goes very far away. And he's just trying to run right? So in verse nine, it says, there he went into a cave. Now remember, when we read about Elijah, he was a mighty prophet, but you know what's cool about Elijah and everybody else in the scripture is that they were like us. They were sinners like us and they were frail like us and they had their ups and they certainly had their downs like we do. So in verse nine, it says, he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God doesn't ask a question that he doesn't already have the answer to. So Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. You know, I see this in the Christian culture today. Everybody's looking for the earthquakes and the rocks being torn. And the big and the exciting and the celebrity. But... God really reveals himself to us a lot in those personal interactions, in those quiet times. God's not going to shout to get our attention. We have to be still and listen for his still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him and said, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said... (laughs) He, you know, he's like us. He's, he's a little dense. He, he says the same thing, which isn't entirely true. It's emotional. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria, and you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. A very sad, a very sad time. Uh, Elisha was in a very difficult time of Israel's history, but God... He listens to what he says. He listens to Elijah. And then he says, here are your marching waters. Go do what I ask you to do. Verse 18 is key. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the principle of the remnant. We also see this in Isaiah 6. We see it in very many portions of scripture. You know, we see it in when God rains down judgment, he removes... The remnant, he removes the righteous. He doesn't punish the righteous with the wicked. And folks, we look around and we see a lot of things in our society that trouble us. But my point to you is be the remnant. Be the remnant. We can be part of the problem, or we can be spectators watching the problem and complaining, or we can be the solution to the problem. Amen? So, God responds in typical election of grace fashion. You haven't seen the 7,000 that I've selected that are faithful to me, that you might not know them, you might not see them, but they're there, Elijah. They're there. It's not just you. So Paul uses this idea of the remnant to speak about Israel. Remember, Paul is, he's, it's amazing. He's kind of doing a dialogue. He's, he's making his case. Paul does so many things at the same time when we read Romans and many other things that he writes. It's powerful, but be the remnant. You know, in our culture, even the Christian culture, and and you see this, you see this in groupthink, you see this a lot of times on social media. You might say something, and it might be right, and it might be scriptural, and then a bunch of people jump on you, and they try to get you to change your mind. You see this in the media. Don't change your mind. If it's from God, if it's reflected in his word, right? You know what Elijah could have said? All right, queen, I'm sorry. I'm not going to serve God anymore. I promise I will be a cultural Israelite. Can you please leave me alone? Can you remove the the death warrant? She probably would have done it. But you know what? He he continued to serve the living God. And so did those 7,000 who did not bow their knees to Baal, but bowed their knees to the living God. Verse 6, continuing on, he says... And if by grace, we're going to make the connection. If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were hardened just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. So two, salvation is either by works or salvation is by grace. What is the fundamental reason for the rejection of Christ, whether it's Israel or people today? It's, it's, it's a rejection of the free gift of grace. God did all the work to save us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him, Christ, would not perish but have eternal life, John three sixteen. So... What happens is whether it's the Israelites that he's referring to or people today, well, you know, I'd never killed anybody. You hear people say that. Well, I've never even been arrested. I don't have a criminal record. You know, I do a lot of good deeds. That doesn't get us into heaven. That's a works based system. We work on our behavior, we work on following the law, the Ten Commandments, and we feel we've attained a righteousness so that when we get to heaven and we knock on the door and we say, you know what, Lord, you should let me in. Here's my resume. Think about the hubris of that. I used to think like that. I'll just be honest with you. So if anybody's thinking like that, and you're, you're kind of on the fence with this whole Jesus thing, I get it. I get it. Because actually having a relationship with the living God, it takes work, it takes time. It, it's not works, but it takes effort. Because now you're having a relationship with the living God instead of doing something on a Sunday and thinking you're good for the rest of the week. That's why it's called a walk with the Lord. People back then, all they did was walk, 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 walk. So when we talk about a walk with the Lord, it's a relationship, it's a walk. So the rejection of the Messiah's grace in favor of our own works and our own righteousness. Now the word work in the Greek, which it was written in, is ergon. At the root of that is the word erg, which is where we get the word in English, erg, which is unit of work or a unit of energy. So, why is what we do to earn salvation unfair? If you're working your way to heaven, your own righteousness, why is that an unfair system? Number one, ability. We already covered the lack of righteousness, right? We can't attain the righteousness that it takes to get to the living God. So, that's one thing. That's one strike against us to try to work our way into heaven. The other thing is, it's unfair. It's unfair, If you are in great physical shape, and you're wealthy, and you have a lot of connections, you can do a lot more works than somebody who may be elderly, disabled, and poor. So works is an unfair system, and God won't have that. Belief in Jesus Christ is a fair system because everyone can do it, regardless of their status in life, and isn't that a good thing? Regardless of how many friends on Facebook you have, regardless of how many people come to your business every day, doesn't matter. You are in the same place as that person who has no friends, who has no money, who has no physical abilities. So grace and works are mutually exclusive. If you choose the one, it cancels the remaining one. If it's works, he says it's by works and it's not by grace. If it's by grace, then it's by grace and it's, not, it's no longer works that you can't have the two of them together. You have to decide which one you want to follow. Verse 7, he says, the elect have obtained that the rest were hardened. So the first group, the elect, came to God as a result of God's grace by believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The second refused God's grace and insisted they were going to heaven by their works. You know, 2000 years later, there are denominations in Christianity that still teach a works-based system. And my question is, do they read the Bible? Because now you have a problem. You either listen to an organization made by men, albeit maybe a powerful organization, or you follow what God's word says. Again, they're also mutually exclusive because they say two very different things. Roman Catholics, Calvary Chapel, Lutherans, Baptists, we all use the same Bible but some still preach salvation by works. Verse seven, the last part of it says, well, the elect have obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In that word hardened, in the Greek, it means to be calloused or a petrification. How many religious people have you met that uh, come off as very cold and unloving and maybe haughty and that they're better than you? It says it right here in the scripture. How many religious people have kept seekers from coming to a church or staying into the church because of their attitude and their behavior, their pride, their arrogance. Remember, Jesus perf- purposely told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe it was something he actually saw. Maybe it was a parable, but it also was a true story. The Pharisee was arrogant. He looks up to God and he's saying he's thanking God for making him such a great religious leader and pointing at the tax collector and saying, I'm glad I'm not like him. And the tax collector can't even look at God. He looks down, he beats his breast, and he says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of those two do you think was justified before God? He goes, I tell you, it wasn't the religious leader, it wasn't the Pharisee, it was the tax collector. Humility is very important. So when we get into this discussion about Israel, yes, we can speak about that fact and and in the leadership. But we can also see that it's alive and well in some Christian denominations today. Amen? Verse 8. Again, all these proof texts that the Apostle Paul uses. Um, If you have a study Bible, uh, most Bibles, I believe, when it refers to another scripture, it's it's italicized. So verse 8 is italicized and refers to Isaiah 29, which is a very interesting scripture if you read it. Because it says that God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. At first glance, this is why context is so important. The Apostle Paul was speaking to believers with the assumption that they knew their word. So sometimes, and you see, this is tough for me sometimes because uh, people who want to just attack the scripture and God's word, they take things out of context. Well, if we go back into context in Isaiah 29, what happens before that is that his so-called people give him lip service and a pretense. And just like Pharaoh, he hardened their heart and gave them over to callousness. God is a fair God. There is no system in God's economy where he favors people. He uses people to accomplish his will. It doesn't mean that he favors them over anybody else. So we all have to, to get to heaven through the same standard. And the thing is, if we just would not be so prideful, it's a very simple thing to get to the living God. You just have to believe and you have to trust that he did all the work. So we look at this. A type of hardness can come when somebody hears the word and they're, they're on the fence and they continue to harden their heart because they don't want it to get too close. They don't want to be vulnerable. That can happen too, a callousness that sets in. Verse 9 comes from Psalm 69. So now he goes from Isaiah to David, where David begs God to deal with his enemies who were making his life miserable. Now, sadly, many of David's enemies, again, if you read the entire Psalm, were his own people. So whether we were looking at the Apostle Paul, Elijah, Isaiah, or David, all Jewish men, they were speaking of the hardness of heart of their own people who were supposed to be God's people, who were supposed to have God's righteousness, but they they traded that for their own self-righteousness because it felt good, because it elevated them. But again, we can see the same thing today. These truths are timeless in the word. My question to you this morning is, what are you loyal to? Think about that for a minute. You've heard the expression, blood is thicker than water. Some people are so loyal to their biological family that whatever their family, des- I've seen this so many times in 15 years. Whatever their family decides, that's what they do. Their culture, that's another strong one. Whatever their culture decides, that's what they do. We should be loyal to God first. If your family or your culture wants to go off the cliff, why would you follow them? But these are ingrained things in, in, our, in our world that we have to battle with. And it's tough because God made us gregarious. God made us even gangs, like violent gangs. Usually they have a rough family life and this is their family now. It's dysfunctional. It's filled with crime. But it's, don't tell me. Most people are not loners. They would prefer to be with others. And here's the rub. When we're in with a group of people that we are loyal to and then we're introduced to the living God and then we have to make a decision. Well, how is this going to affect them? And sadly, like the rich young ruler in Jesus's day, even today, many people walk away. They turn their back on the living God. They turn their back on Jesus and salvation because of a foolish loyalty to somebody in this world. It could be your profession. It could be your political party. My goodness, we've seen that all over the place. When I was a kid, you could disagree with somebody and still be their friends. Today, we've lost our collective minds in our culture. You know what I'm saying? What are we loyal to, Folks. It needs to be the Lord first. Be loyal to the Lord. Because we don't owe anything to anybody, but we do owe everything to the Lord who died for our sins. Verse 11, last few verses for this morning. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, this can also be translated their trespass, I'm going to get back to that. To provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Here's interesting. Paul's people, the Jews... He was fluent in Hebrew. He memorized the scripture. He had a camaraderie with the religious leaders. He was at the top of the world. He was at the top of his game. Check this out. As much as he loved them and he loved his culture, he had to break ranks with them when it came to Jesus Christ. But his desire was to bring them into the fold. Folks, are we allowing ungodly people to influence negatively? Or are we positively influencing the ungodly? That's very important because that is a dynamic. It's like an equilibrium in chemistry. I used to like those, those um, equations. They would go back and forth. There's, no, there's nothing static in influence. At any given moment in time, we're being negatively influenced by our culture, by what we see on TV or the world, or we're positively influencing others for Jesus Christ. And this was Paul's heart. He's like, I'm not going to be negatively influenced of those that are denying Jesus, but I want to positively influence them so they can be saved like I'm saved. I want them to taste of the salvation that I've tasted of. Pretty interesting stuff there. So he says, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance be but life from the dead? Third, three out of three this morning. Good comes out of bad. First of all, Israel's rejection of the Messiah is temporary, and it's not monolithic. You hear that a lot today. Um, Monolith, you know, who votes in a monolith? Who thinks in a monolith? Hopefully nobody, because a monolith is a mindless thing where people like me or people like you, we get together and we kind of have this echo chamber of thought, and we do things and we think things the same way. That's a monolith what Paul was saying is the Israelites are not a monolith and none of us should be a monolith. We should be only a monolith when it comes to what it says in the word, what it says in the word. So it's temporary. It's not monolithic. And in the future, it will bear fruit. Now check this out. Um, I I went to my Greek lexicon because if you look at the study Bible, it has a word, it has another word, and then in italics, underneath the verse, it'll have another word, which is an alternate translation. This is the difference between two words. And if you take the the Greek um, understanding and you apply it, it, it makes a little bit more sense. It's a nuance, but it's there. So I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall. It's been translated twice or three times in the English as fall. However, the first fall is, is a pipto. It's, it's a fall. It's a, a total fall. The second fall is a paraptima, the, the second two, which means, which means a, a stumbling. So th- there's, there's some subtleties to this. Israel stumbled, or what, what he's saying is, should they fall like completely? The answer is no. But through their stumble... To provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their stumble is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So you see the difference there. That's why I love messing with, I love going back into the old translations. And yes, is it legitimate to say fall both times? Yes, but there are some nuances behind that in the original language, which is pretty neat. They they didn't fall completely, they stumbled, but God is going to do a great work with them. We've been in the prophet Isaiah for uh, about a year or so prior to this, and we see their their role in the millennial kingdom. This is why... I, I strongly preach against what's called replacement theology. Replacement theology is taking some of the Christian denominations and influencing them and almost, it's really an ignorance of the Old Testament and an ignorance of God's love for Israel and saying that the church is now the new Israel. God is completely done with Israel. Well, right here, we're reading Romans 11. says, no, he's not done with Israel. So where do these doctrines come up from? You know, it's so bizarre. It's almost like circular reasoning. You hear some of these doctrines on TV and then they throw these phrases out. And it's like, where did somebody come up with that ridiculous doctrine? But they do that in so-called Christianity too. Somebody gets a few letters after their name. They come on TV and, and they, they deceive and they frighten Christians who don't know their words very well. They don't know God's word very well. So replacement theology, we, we dismiss it. We reject it because it's a rejection of Israel, and that's not reflected in Scripture. So Israel's stumble about rejecting their own Messiah caused two things to happen. Number one, it blew the doors wide open for the Gentiles to come into the faith. It's almost like a sub-theme this morning of the prophet Elijah. If we could put up Matthew 11, it's our last reference Scripture for the morning. Matthew 11, and I'm going to explain this. Starting with verse 11, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He had great things to say about John the Baptist, but he who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear let him hear. I want to specifically focus on a few things where he says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Is there any way any army in the world can get in front of God's door so to speak if it was possible and you know start shooting the mortars and the F35s or shooting missiles into God's door and blows it open and they get in and say hey we, we've just taken over heaven. Of course not. It's ridiculous. Jesus often used metaphors to make a very strong point. The people at that time were were very familiar with what's called siege warfare, where there would be a castle or some supposedly impregnable fortress where the invaders would come and they would use catapults and they would use just barrage after barrage. And there were times that they were able to break into that castle and seize it. What Jesus is saying in this metaphor is that in his day, in this period of time, right with John the Baptist as part of it, with the, as an Elijah to come, that all of a sudden the doors of heaven were being opened wide and people were cramming their way into it. Something we couldn't see, something the disciples couldn't see. But probably if God gave us, like he's done with some in the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament, if he gave us spiritual eyes to see, what we would see is that when people were dying, receiving Christ and dying, that there all of a sudden was this magnificent amount of numbers of people in the first century that were getting into heaven. So it's a pretty powerful metaphor as we think about it. The first century really opened the doors for the Gentiles. Now, the church started as a Jewish belief system the disciples, Jesus, the leadership, the apostles. But what happened is over time, Gentiles started coming in, probably by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So a very, very exciting scripture to look at. And the reason I bring it up is because this was, Israel's stumble allowed this great thing to happen. The other thing that was really neat was though, is that it caused the jealousy. And though nationally, The Jewish people have not necessarily accepted Christ as their Messiah. They have accepted him personally. So what does this jealousy look like? This is important because, again, people who don't know the scripture can read something out of context and go, look, God says that we should be jealous or we should make people jealous. It's really not saying that, and I'll explain to you why. Jealousy actually is a very ugly thing. To me, jealousy is one of the ugliest sins in the church when people envy each other and treat each other poorly because of the way they look or what they have. Jealousy is hideous. It sounds like I'm painting myself into a corner, doesn't it? What he's speaking about is, and and I've done this, you know, I'm reading the Bible, I take it seriously. So I'm like, you know, I went on this quest in the Old Testament. I went to read um, Old Testament prophets and learn Jewish culture and stuff. So I love witnessing the Jewish people. A lot of times they look at me funny and they go, are you Jewish? You know what I'm saying? How do you know all this stuff? I have Jewish friends that say, you know more about my feast than I do. I didn't know about the meaning behind the Passover. And it's really cool. They actually, you pique their curiosity. It's it Maybe jealousy is a harsh term, but they get a, an interest in, wait a minute, I'm Jewish. I don't believe in Yeshua. He's not, and he does, and he knows more about Something's weird here. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'll tell you next Sunday more about my surgeon, my otolaryngologist. Great discussion with him. I mean, he's Hebrew scholar, all that stuff. But I'll talk about that next Sunday. Um, but that it's that jealousy to get a Jewish person to get an interest in this Messiah that they've been told they should not believe in. And then you present to them another side. That's exciting. So, Okay. The bottom line is this, right? <laughs> the bottom line is this, in verse fifteen. That was perfectly timed. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance be? But life from the dead. Amen. Life from the dead, and that's that's a true statement because well, everything in here is true. Because, you know. I, Again, I, I, I existed for 20-something years before I became a Christian, so I was alive physically, but I wasn't alive spiritually. I was dead spiritually. This is so cool, and God does this oftentimes on a regular basis. This week, a brother in the Lord said, I know somebody from your past. Well, that's always fun. And <laughs> and uh, he wants to counsel with you. I'm like, well, that's even more interesting. So I won't say the guy's name because I'm I'm working on him. But he comes into my office and he brings me back 25 years. And uh, he's we anyway. He's got the all these issues that happened to him, and we're talking. And he's kind of looking at me, and he's he's making these faces. He's smirking at me. And, and I'm like, yeah, I'm different, aren't I? He goes, yeah. He starts, he goes, I, like he's partially blown away by just like sizing me up and my expressions and what I'm saying. And let's go back to the title. The title is Beauty for Ashes. If you're a believer, and listen, I didn't kill anybody. I know some of you are like, what, what kind of person were you? I was a worldly person, period. So we're sitting in the office and I said to him, bro, I'm alive now. I'm the best I could possibly be. I said, when you knew me, and he's smirking again, I'm like, I'm not that person anymore. And I said, I want the same for you. So it was great because I was able to break out into a witnessing opportunity. And folks, that's what Beauty for Ashes is. Whether we're talking about the context of Israel, and it's going to be beautiful when the present leadership in Israel is removed and the Lord comes and directly You know, they see him, they see the wounds, they see his power, they see him in the sky. Zechariah 12, they they mourn that for so long they didn't believe. And then he takes uh, leadership in Jerusalem. Beauty for ashes. But folks, I can tell you about beauty for ashes in my simple little insignificant life. And I got to share those beauty for ashes this week. So if you're a believer, you understand what that is. If you're not a believer, consider... Consider the fact that Jesus died for your sins. Consider the fact that any ashes that you have in your life now, especially the fact that you don't know the living God, he wants to give you beauty. He wants to do a new work in you. He wants to breathe life into you. He wants to revive you spiritually. He wants to promise you eternal life. Folks, I don't care who you are, what you've been, where you've, what you've done. Don't confess it. Keep that to yourself or keep it to the Lord. But the Lord wants to do that in your life as well. Let's pray.